All right, we are going to get started here and get fired into um, Genesis chapter 3. Are you ready? This is, the bi- this is the big one, isn't it? This is the big kind of finale to this section at the beginning, um, and lots of important things that we need to get to, not least Jesus, and we will attempt to get to him um, through Genesis 3. I wanted to, before we get into that, just as we were worshiping, I just got a sense of um, that if you're here this morning and you feel um, a bit crushed and a bit broken, I wanted to read these words to you from Isaiah 42, where the prophet describes the hope of one who's to come. And the one who's to come is described like this. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not quench. But he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. And I just want to say to you this morning that if you do feel crushed, there is one who... There's one who will set things right for you and is setting things right for you, even in the way that you're feeling at the moment. And he is one who will not crush you or break you. He is one who will deal tenderly with you. And we're going to be talk a lot about crushing this morning. But it is not God who is crushing you. He is the one who has come to restore you and to save you. So let's pray just over that as we begin. Lord, I just pray for us all today that each one of us would sense your presence very close to us, particularly today those of us who maybe feel um, um, raw in our hearts or crushed or like that flickering flame. I pray, Lord, that as we look at your word that we would sense you coming close to us. We would receive the care that you want to give to us and that our hearts and our minds and our emotions would be lifted by the truth, the truth that you are making things right and that you are making all things new and that we will see justice and our brokenness healed and we trust in you to do it. Would you speak to us through the authority of your word today and by your spirit Reveal your truth to us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Um, yeah, Eden, I don't know. <laughs> we might have to tap dance a little bit this morning. So just hang with me. Um, over the last couple of weeks, we've been working through this beginning part of Genesis. And the first week, we saw how God created and ordered the world with function and with purpose, 
and God made the world as a place where life can flourish. And he made humanity in his image, or another way of putting that is he made humanity as his royal representatives to rule under his authority so that his glory and his goodness would be known throughout the whole of creation. And last week when we looked at Genesis 2, we saw or we asked the question, what does it mean to live in God's world as God intended? And we saw that God um, placed the humans, both male and female, who he formed. He placed them in a garden and appointed them with three primary objectives. The first was to cultivate life, to be those that bring life. The second was to enjoy all that God had provided in obedience to his wisdom. And the third was to love and care for one another in mutuality, equality, and partnership. So you had relationships established with the created order, with one another, and with God himself, all under God's good wisdom and God's good rule. But the people who would initially have been reading Genesis would most likely have been Israelites who were in exile. And so the world that they were experiencing was very much different than the world as it's described in Genesis 1. Um, Their relationship to the land has been changed. They're no longer in the land that God had promised them. Their relationship to one another has changed as the tribes have become fractured and broken up and sent into exile. And their relationship with God has changed because they now sense a distance from God, that that relationship that they had enjoyed with him has been, in some sense, broken. And the question that they might have asked when reading Genesis 1 and 2, and which maybe you and I might ask as well, don't know, do you ever feel a little bit like an exile in this world? The question we might ask is, why are we not living in the world God intended in the way God intended? What has happened between the world that we experience and the world that Genesis 1 and 2 describes? That okay? Ready? Hold on. Okay, verse 1. Here we go. Straight at it. Now, the serpent. Who? Yeah, where did he come from? The serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. The serpent is part of God's creation. Now, when we hear serpent in this story, what or who immediately comes to mind? Satan. Yeah, that's right. I know we don't want to say that too loud. In church, Satan is what comes to mind. And it's understandable um, why that would be, because the New Testament draws a connection directly between the snake and Satan. Most explicitly in Revelation 12, it says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Um, But this understanding of Satan really developed in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, so what they call the intertestamental period, was in a real full understanding of who Satan was developed. And so the original readers of Genesis would not have made the, the immediate connection that we do with Satan, but they would have connected the serpent with trouble and probably evil. Um, Now, why a serpent? There's a good picture of a snake for you, just in case you love snakes. Um, Why a serpent? Serpent actually was a common symbol in the culture in which Israel was a part of, an ancient Near Eastern culture. For instance, in Egypt, serpents were actually associated with both wisdom and death. They appeared on the crown of Pharaoh, 
Um, they were painted on sarcophagi, and they featured in the Book of the Dead as deadly enemies that went along the path to the afterlife. In, in the ancient Mesopotamian poem, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the hero of that epic finds a plant that can restore youth, but a snake comes along and snatches the plant away from him. And so ancient literature was full of these kinds of what we might call chaos creatures that were mischievous and often caused trouble and destruction. And the Bible also speaks of chaos creatures like Leviathan, uh, who's spoken about in Genesis 1. And the serpent of Genesis 3, on the face of it, can be viewed as another chaos creature who enters this world that God has created, creates trouble, and then exits. And the serpent is described as crafty. Uh, and the word for crafty is the word arum, which means um, prudent, actually, or shrewd. It can also mean crafty, but crafty, prudent, or shrewd. And actually, that word arum carries connotations of wise. So there's something about wisdom that's coming in here. And if you were reading this in Hebrew, you would see some clever wordplay here in association with a man and woman who are described as naked. Oh, go back. You were on it, you got it, here we go. Uh, um, described as naked, and the word for naked is aromim, right? So um, if you take away the chapter headings, you know that the Bible didn't have chapter headings in it originally, right? All those numbers we added in later. Okay, so if you just removed those and read it straight through, you'd have the man and his wife were both aromim and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was arum. So you've got this kind of wordplay that's going on between the two. And the serpent is entering the story with a kind of wisdom that is going to affect the innocence of the man and the woman. And the serpent speaks. He says to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And so the kind of trouble that this serpent is going to bring is a kind of subtle evil. There isn't a statement. There's just a question. And it's actually a ridiculous question. What would happen to Adam and Eve if God said you can't eat of any of the, any of the trees? Yeah, well, yeah, they'd starve. Yeah, they don't have any food to eat. So the question on its face of it is ridiculous. Um, and so it's designed to undermine God's words to the man and woman. Because God's words were originally full of purpose and permission, right? And God gave them one prohibition, but plenty of permission. But the serpent's question reframes God's words as being all about the prohibition. And how should the woman handle this? What do you think, Georgia? What should she do? What should the woman do? Um, if it was me, uh -huh. I would say no. Yep, you would say no. Brilliant. <laughs> I agree. Um, but Genesis 1 actually gives us a clue. If we go back to uh, Genesis 1, God said, let us make humans in our image, male and female, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing. What's a snake? A creeping thing. So God has given the woman authority and dominion over the snake. And so she has the authority to call it out, to frame the question as ridiculous and not even entertain it, to laugh the serpent out of the garden. But instead, she, instead of exercising her authority, she lowers herself to the level of the serpent and engages. And she says, 
In verse 2, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. Now, if you're just kind of hearing that off the cuff, you feel like, oh, that's a pretty good summary of what God said to them, but it's not. It's horrendous, <laughs> because she makes several changes to what God says. There are distortions in her answer, and I'll just put them up side by side here so you can see them. So... Um, God originally says, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. She changes it to just, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So you see how God's permission has now been restricted already. Um, second, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Um, she says that God says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Let me ask you a question. How many trees were in the middle of the garden? Special trees. Two special trees. So what is Eve now focused on? She's Correct. So the tree of life is no longer in her view. This question that she's been asking, that she's answering, has reframed everything around the thing that she's not allowed to do. And so and now, that if you read the text, it actually kind of... You can read it as it says that the tree of life was in the center of the garden, and also there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But she's, everything's flipped now. It's all turned on its head. Um, then there's something that God doesn't say that she introduces, nor shall you touch it. God never said that they can't touch it. What do you call it when you make up rules to keep yourself from doing bad stuff? Legalism. Legalism. The woman becomes the first legalist. She adds a thing on. And so that you could maybe infer from this that something has already been in their mind about perhaps going and having a go at this tree. And so they've invented a new, she invented a new rule. Don't even touch it because, you know, we're not allowed to go over there. And then God says, for in the day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. Eve changes that to, or you shall die. So the punishment or the consequence for disobeying God's word has been drastically reduced as well. Um, so you can see how engaging in this ridiculous question that the serpent has asked has brought the woman into distorting what God said. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this is the, the serpent is now directly challenging God's words, God's wisdom, and God's motivation. And what the serpent uses are all actually half-truths. So um, it's actually true that the woman, if she ate the fruit, would not immediately die. Like, <sighs> so there's a half-truth involved there. We'll find out a little bit more about that later. God did know that it would open their eyes, and God did know that it would enable them to know things that he didn't want them to know. So these are all half-truths, but the way that it's framed is to place God um, in a position of jealousy and fear. The knowledge that God wanted to protect them from was not just an intellectual knowledge of evil, like here's some good rules to keep, and here's some good rules um, that you, you shouldn't break. The knowledge God wanted to protect them from was the knowledge of experience. They had already experienced the goodness of God's world, of God's provision, of relationship with one another. And they also knew about evil in a sense because God had told them, don't do this 
or you might die. But they had not yet experienced evil. They hadn't seen it at work. And the serpent's statement twists God's words and intentions. So that now what seemed like a good world full of potential with a single prohibition is now to the woman a claustrophobic world full of restriction, fueled by God's fear that the man and woman might escape the shackles that he has placed on them. Everything has been turned upside down. And this is confirmed in verse 6 when we read this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. This is not some arbitrary moral test that God has set up. God determines what is good. And Genesis 1 repeatedly shows us that God is creating through his words and God said, and then affirming his creation and God saw that it was good. And when the human was alone um, in Genesis 2, God saw that it was not good. And so God determines what is good and not good for us in the world that he has made. But now the woman has decided that the fruit that God said was not good is in fact good. And what is it? She saw the way that God saw that it was good. The woman is now seeing that this fruit is good. And this is the decision that all of us face as we navigate life in this world that God has created. Will we let God define good and evil for us, or will we attempt to define it for ourselves? And if we look around at the chaos of the world in which we live, we might determine that that's the result of people deciding good and evil for themselves. But there's something else that we discover here. This is not a solo conversation. And what appeared to be a chat between the serpent and the woman actually includes the man. But he never intervenes, and he never contributes to correct the serpent's words. And I think that he never does this because his desire was also to eat from the tree. To intervene would prevent him from getting the thing that he wanted. And we've all been there, right, when you let someone else um, initiate something wrong, and we just kind of go along for the ride, and we don't say anything about it. And it's a handy tactic to have, because you can get to do the thing that you really want to do. But when trouble comes, you can say, well, wasn't me, Guff. They did it. They initiated it all completely. It's that thing that your children say, oh, the other kids were doing it. What's the appropriate response to that, parents? If Johnny jumped off a cliff, would you do it? You're right. Okay, but it's that thing about absolving ourselves of blame. It means that we can blame someone else for our own willful disobedience. And that's exactly the defense that the man launches, as we'll see in a minute. So both the man and the woman are equally responsible and both actively participate in the evil of asserting their moral independence from God. And the impact of this is immediately experienced as shame, a shame that fractures the relationship. Shame causes us to distance ourselves from our own unbearable inner emotions and also to distance ourselves from each other. I was watching Question Time recently and one of the audience members was getting very angry at one of the, I, don't, I, can't, I don't, can't remember which one, a politician that was sitting at the front and they said, you should be ashamed of yourself. You shouldn't even be showing your face here. So there's a sense of you should, you should be so aware of the wrong that you're perpetrating, that you should be so ashamed that you should actually be hiding yourself from us. And that's the sense that we get of what's happened with the man and the woman. They are hiding themselves um, from 
them from each other, actually, they get a break in their relationship because they end up putting um, fig leaves on themselves to try to cover themselves up. What began as a relationship of loving gaze upon one another has now become so fractured that they can no longer bear to look at each other. And in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Question for you, where's God been? It's a genuine question. Where do you think he's been? Right. So we know that God doesn't like hike off somewhere. God is there all the time. He's not been absent, but in the minds of the man and the woman, he has been absent. Their conversation with the serpent has made God a third party who's out there. And instead of talking to God, they are now talking with the serpent about God. This is important for us. It's good for us to talk about God. But talking about God is not enough to keep us connected to his wisdom for us. We need to remember to talk to God. We need to position ourselves to constantly be hearing from him. And it says that God walked in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. So there's a sense that God has come down and a breeze has filled the garden. Does that remind you of any other part of the story that we've read so far? Of God coming down and there being a breeze. Yeah, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. The point where God brought chaos, brought order to the chaos. What? God didn't bring chaos. That's heresy. God brought order to the chaos waters. And just as he did that, he's going to bring order to the situation with this chaos creature. But this time, instead of being the creator, God is going to act primarily as judge. And so now the humans are afraid, and the fear is added to the shame, and their relationship with God is now entering this phase of brokenness, and so they hide themselves from him. But just as the fig leaves don't remove their shame, it's impossible for them to hide from God. God sees all. And when you hear that, God sees all. It'd be interesting to think about what response that invokes in our hearts. Do you, like the man and the woman, when you get that sense that God sees all, experience any shame or fear? Is your next response to justify your hidden sin or to look for someone to blame? Because that's certainly how the man responds to the questions that God asks him. In verse 12, the man said, The woman who you ate... Sorry, (laughs) I'm saying all kinds of things about God today. The woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate. (laughs) Who, Who is the man blaming The women? Anybody else? God. Yeah. So there's two levels of blame here. The lower level is it's the woman. She made me do it. But the ultimate victim of, of Adam's blame is God himself. If God, he says, had never created the woman, he wouldn't be in this mess. Can you imagine how dehumanizing that must be for the woman to hear? 
if it weren't for you, if God had never made you, this wouldn't have happened. And here we see the centuries-long tactic of men blaming women for their own sinfulness. It originates here. For her part, the woman blames the snake. And if we can detach ourselves from that whole Satan-snake connection just for a second, because that will be established much later, what we actually see is that the woman is blaming God again for the creation that he has given them to rule over. So both the man and the woman blame God. It's not us, Gov. It's you. You gave us stuff that wasn't good, except the stuff that God gave them was good. So here you have that turning upside down of what's good and what's not good. And what we see emerging here is a a three-way break in relationship, a break between the humans and creation, a break between the man and the woman, and a break between the humans and God. And these are all reflected in the judgments that God's about to pronounce at the scene. And the scene now becomes like a courtroom. God is going to curse both the serpent and the land, but he does not curse the man and the woman. Instead, he pronounces the consequences of their actions. So let's look at the serpent first. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, this curse about the snake crawling on its belly is not about it having its legs removed or something like that. Um, It's actually more about the humiliation of the snake. Snakes who have risen up are in a defensive or an attacking position. If you look at the crowns of the, the pharaohs, they would have snakes on them, and the snakes were in an upright position to kind of symbolize their power and wisdom. The snake in Genesis 3 has risen up to attack God and his appointed representatives with its own self-proclaimed wisdom. But God's curse on the snake is that it shall be brought low and forced into a docile position without any power. And the key thing to this judgment is the next section in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Enmity is not just like I don't like you. Enmity is hostile opposition. And the opposition that God is pronouncing will be between the descendants of the woman and the spiritual forces of evil that the serpent represents. And in the immediate context of Genesis, Genesis is going to play out with this expectation that one of the descendants of the woman is going to be the one that that sets things right, um, that would challenge and overcome evil. And so Genesis is very focused on this lineage of the people that follow after Eve. From a New Testament perspective, we know that the descendant of the woman, the offspring who will crush the head of Satan, is Jesus, son of Mary, son of Eve, son of Adam, son of God. Next, the woman is told of the consequences of her actions. Verse 16, it says, To the woman he said, I will make your pangs in childbirth exceedingly great. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This is one of the most misunderstood and misused passages in all of Scripture, and uh, we're going to take a little bit of time to look at it, um, because many of our translations don't help. Um, So let's put up that first part of verse 16. Uh, I will make your pangs in childbirth exceedingly great. Um, and you get it in other versions as well, but this God making the pains in childbearing and multiplying the pain um, of childbearing. The word translated here um, in the NRSV version for childbirth um, is the word, oh, forget this. 
Go to the next one. Go back. Go back. Let's just stick here. The word for childbirth here is the word herayon. It doesn't mean childbirth. It means conception or to conceive. Um, so um, it's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, when it says that the man knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. It's the same word, herayon. And it appears over and over again in the Old Testament as conceive. And so actually this verse should read, I will make your, your pangs, go to the next slide, I will make your pangs uh, in conception very severe with painful labor you'll give birth to children. And the word for pangs and pain um, has the same, this root word at sab, and the word is never used in Hebrew to refer to labor pains. It's a different kind of pain. But as we can see in here, itzabon is a form of atzab. So you've got itzabon and atzab. Itzabon is related to conception. Atzab is related to labor. So whatever this pain is, it has to be related to both conceiving children and uh, delivering children. Um, and there's another clue about what this pain might be in verse 17 when it talks about the man and what, he, um, what his punishment will be. It says that cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat all of the days of your life. And the word for toil that's translated there is the same word that's used for pain in 16. So this pain is not a pain of, pre of delivering a baby, the pain of bringing a baby into the world. It's a pain that's related to the woman's conceiving of children, the woman's delivering of children, and the work that the man has to do, okay? Um, and it's this same word for pain is used throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis 6, it says, the Lord regret regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. The word for deeply troubled is the same word at Sam for pain. So this is not the physical pain of childbirth. It's a different kind of pain. What is the pain that God's experiencing in that moment? He looks on the violence and shedding of innocent blood, and he feels grief. And that's the kind of pain at Saab that is used to describe um, this pain over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And the scholar Ian Proven says that this pain is an emotional pain. He says, at Saab refers to the agony, hardship, worry, nuisance, and anxiety of the circumstances into which children are born and then raised, and in which they die. This is the very noun that appears in verse 17 where the man is told, cursed is the ground, and in toil or in pain you shall eat of it. The King James Version, this is a, a weekend for kings and their Bibles, the King James Version actually gets it closest. Put that up the next slide. King James Version says, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And unto Adam he said, Cursed is the ground for, uh, for thy sake. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. And as Genesis progresses, you have this sense that the conceiving and bearing and raising of children occurs in circumstances of conflict and jealousy and is fraught with pain and with sorrow. Equally, the work of the man is now frustrated and comes with its own problems such as famine and drought. And most importantly, for women, this is not a pronouncement that God will make your giving birth painful. It's an acknowledgement that the, that the humans, in turning their back on God's good wisdom, have created circumstances 
where their calling as cultivators of life and caretakers of creation will be frustrated and full of sorrow. Both men and women will experience at sab or pain or sorrow in their calling to be fruitful and to multiply. And the second part of the verse is also often misunderstood. Verse 16b, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This verse, this part of the verse has been taught um, that the woman's desire is to control or act against the man. And so God has given the husband the right to rule over her to control her sinful desires. So the way it's taught is often is the problem is the woman. The woman wants to control the man. So God has said, man, you need to control the woman to keep her in check. But the word for desire here is teshuka, and it doesn't mean to oppose or to be contrary to. It means focused attention or devotion. And this verse is not prescriptive. This is not a verse that's telling the man or the woman what they should do. It's describing to them what will do, what will happen. It's descriptive. It's saying to the woman that she will now experience something due to the fracture in her relationship with the man. She will now desire or long for her husband but he will inevitably take advantage of that desire to control her and to exert authority over her. And so male dominance of wives and the subjugation of women is a result of the fall. It's a result of the sinfulness of human beings. Before the man and woman sought to decide good and evil for themselves, their relationship was one of mutuality and equality. But after taking the fruit, their relationship is characterized by tension and inequality. In verse 20, you see that the first thing that happens after this judgment, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Not that one, the one before. All right, okay. Well, that's what it says. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Um, is there anything else that the man named in this story? The problem is that the man will now treat his wife not as an equal, but as part of the creation which must be ruled over. And this pattern of male dominance and subjugation of women is played out over the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures with devastating effects for both women and men. But thankfully, in Christ, that inequality has been eradicated and men and women are restored to equal value before God and in their function in the church. Amen? Finally, God is going to perform two acts of mercy. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and his wife and clothed them. This is a beautiful act of God's grace where he shows them that although they will suffer the consequences of their sin, he will still remain involved with them. That is, God has not abandoned humanity. While we may separate ourselves from him, he does not separate himself from us. And this is especially important when God exiles the humans from the garden that is made for them. Because the death that God predicted would happen um, if they chose their own wisdom over his has now become a reality. And the travesty is, as they leave, we find out that they could have eaten from the tree of life. But by separating themselves from God, the true source of life, the humans would now experience both spiritual and physical death. So, the question we asked at the beginning, why are we not living in the world God intended in the way God intended? An easy answer would be to say, because of Adam and Eve. It's their fault. But then who would we be like? Blaming Adam and Eve. We'd be entering the same blame game. 
The Apostle Paul prevents us from doing this. In Romans 5, he says this in verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all, because all have sinned. Well, Adam and Eve initiated the rebellion against God by deciding what was good and evil for themselves. All of us have joined in. All of us. Death has spread to us, not just because of what Adam and Eve did, but because of what we have done. We are all those who insist on our independence from God, on doing things our own way, on rejecting the wisdom of God for our own. And the result is a world where we are frustrated in our relationship with the creation, which in all of our attempts to subdue it, we have misused and ravaged. Our human relationships are infected by pain and conflict and power struggles. Our relationship with God is characterized by fear and shame and alienation. But God has not abandoned us. And just as he provided clothes to Adam and Eve as a sign of grace, so he has provided his son to cover our sin and shame and to restore us to him. Jesus, this is the Jesus bit. Jesus is the promised descendant of Eve, the second Adam who came to do what Adam could not and crush the head of the serpent. He did this first through his life when he rejected the temptations of Satan to exercise his own wisdom apart from the wisdom of God. Instead, Jesus lived a life of obedience to his father's voice without sin, without shame, and without fear. And although Jesus' death on the cross appeared to be a victorious strike for Satan the serpent, His resurrection showed that he had, in fact, conquered the powers of sin and death and defeated our enemy. So now, through faithful allegiance to Jesus the King, we can return to God as our source of life. Our sin and shame are removed, and our fear is replaced by intimacy with God. In Christ, the barriers of our relationships are removed, as there is now no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, all of us are one in Christ Jesus. And in Christ, our work is given purpose. It becomes an avenue through which we share Christ's character with others. By the power of his spirit, we learn to cultivate power wherever we go as we walk in obedience and discipleship to him. As we do this, we join with Jesus in his work of recreating the world as a place where his kingdom rule is experienced where the power of Satan is defeated, and where one day we will rule and reign with him in a new creation. The point is not to get back to the garden. The point is that Jesus is so amazing that he has something in store for us which surpasses even the promise of the garden. And that is a sign of his grace, that though we have sinned, what he restores to us is even greater. And so the real question for each of us today is, will you trust God? Will you trust his voice? Will you listen to him? Or will you listen to the voice of the culture around us or the voice of your own wisdom? The truth is that God by his spirit is hovering over us and he is speaking to us. He's speaking his wisdom and he is defining for us not just what is morally right and wrong, not just giving us a list of rules that we should or shouldn't accomplish, but that he's telling us what is good, what is good for us, what is good for our lives and our families and our church and our communities and the world in which we live in. 
And if we want to join him in his kingdom purposes, we need to listen to that voice that speaks goodness and follow him in obedience. Let's stand.